Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Technically, this evening, we are in Isaiah 9, but don't start there. We will get there eventually. But in order to understand Isaiah 9, you have to understand the battle at Midian. The battle at Midian is so important that God makes reference to it within the context of saying that he's going to bring peace and security to Israel He's reassuring them that he is going to fight for them and says, the same way I did at Midian. Now, any Jew of Isaiah's day would know the Jewish history well enough to know the story of the Battle of Midian and the story of Gideon by the 300 will I save. They would know all that. But I can't just assume that everybody in the room and everybody listening on the internet necessarily knows that story. And so we're going to read that story first so that you can feel the significance of it when God himself brings it up because God uses it as an indication of his faithfulness and his power and his ability to fight for Israel in order to bring about the things that he has promised to Israel. And so if God himself is willing to use it as a reference point, I think we ought to have a a pretty good comprehension of it. Back in the book of Judges, turn back there. And we will start in Judges chapter 6. And we will start right at verse 1 of chapter 6, and we're going to read the next couple of chapters. I don't really intend to preach the details of this story, even though they are significant. I'm going to try to just read through these next couple chapters so that we have this familiarity with the story. But it will be difficult for me to just read and not comment. But I will do my best because I am convinced that there is nothing more fun than listening to Jim read. So... Chapter 6, verse 1 of the book of Judges. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. And the power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east, and they would go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come in like locusts for number, Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up out of Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, and his son, 
Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. So Gideon is technically hiding at this point, and he's beating out the last of his wheat so that he and his father can have something to eat, and he's doing it in the wine press so that they wouldn't realize that he actually had nourishment, sustenance. So he's not being exactly brave at this moment. He's hiding and trying to eke out an existence for his father and himself. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. That had to be kind of shocking, considering his position at the moment. (laughs) Now, at this moment, I don't believe that God was saying, you have been a valiant warrior. I think God was saying, this is who you are and what I'm going to make you. This is what you're going to be, because now he's going to send him into the battle with Midian. It is God's intention to use Gideon to defeat Midian. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian Have not I sent you? This is the same God who a moment ago said, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who drove out your enemies before you and gave you the land. Now I want you, Gideon, to go defeat the Midianites. And when Gideon is going to argue with him and say, I'm just one man and I'm the least of the men in my household, how am I going to defeat Midian and the Midianites? God's answer to him is, haven't I sent you? Like, if I'm with you, who do you think is going to overthrow you? Verse 15, and he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. In other words, the whole of the armies of Midian are going to fall before you as if you were only fighting one fellow. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in thy sight, then show me a sign that it is you, that it is thou who speaketh with me. Please do not depart from here until I get back to thee, until I come back to thee, and bring out my offering and lay it before thee. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a kid and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in the basket and the broth in the pot, and he brought them out under the oak, and he presented them. And the angel of the Lord said, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth, apparently pour it over it. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of his staff that was in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Okay, that's a pretty good sign. So that's a pretty good indication that it was, in fact, Yahweh himself speaking to Gideon and reassuring Gideon that he was going to go be this mighty man of valor. When Gideon saw that he was an angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace to you, do not be afraid, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it is still in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and put down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, and take the second bull and offer a burnt offering 
with the wood of the Ashura, which you have cut down. And then Gideon took ten men of his servants, and he did as the Lord had spoken to him. And it came about, because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city, he was too afraid to do it by day, so he went and did it by night. Again, an indication that this is not a particularly brave guy. And yet, God says, God declares, God names him a mighty man of valiance, a valiant warrior. Verse 28 then. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah, which was beside it, was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built, and they said to one another, Who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. For he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it. But Joash said to all of them who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is God, let him contend for himself, because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore, on that day, he named him Jeroboam, or Jeroboam, if I get the syllable sounds correct, named him Jeroboam, and that is to say, let Baal contend for himself, because he has torn down his altar. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves, and they crossed over and they camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they also were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they all came together to meet. And Gideon said to God, If thou wilt deliver Israel through me, as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And if there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that thou wilt deliver Israel through me, as thou hast spoken. And it was so. And when he arose early the next morning and squeezed out the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. You would think that that would be good enough. Okay, I've laid out my fleece before God. God answered me. Good enough. No, not good enough. Verse 39, Gideon's really trying to get out of this. He's really concerned that he may not be the man for the job. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let thine anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, and let there be dew on the ground. And God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and the dew was on the ground. You're not escaping it, Gideon. This is what you're going to do. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Harad, and the camp of Midian was on the south side of them, by the hill, in the moray, in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you. Now, remember a moment ago, the Midianites were described as locusts on the ground and camels and men innumerable. And so the reason that Gideon has sent out notices to all his fellow clans is because he's trying to raise an army significant enough to be able to go fight against Midian because God has told him that he's going to go lead an army against Midian. So God comes to him in verse 2 here of chapter 7 and says, And the Lord said, The people who are with you are too many for me. What's God doing? He's making sure that when it's all said and done, he's the only one that gets credit. And so here is Midian about to go against this massive army of his enemies. And God says, nah, you got too much help. 
you got too many people with you. We're going to pare them down a little bit. The people who are with you, I like the fact that he didn't say the people who are with you are too many for you. He said, it's too many for me. I don't want anybody sharing in my glory. The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, lest Israel becomes boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. Now, therefore, come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people up and left him, but 10,000 remained. So that tells you that he had an army initially of 32,000 people. He had to feel pretty good about it. You know, at least I got an army of 32,000. God pairs it down to 10,000. And he says, anybody that's afraid, go home. I'm amazed there was anybody still standing. <laughs> but everybody just kind of went, right, good, thanks, and, and took off. So now he's standing with his 10,000. And the Lord said to Gideon, verse 4, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore, it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now, years ago, I heard this particular section preached, and this will sound familiar to you, Tom. It was preached as this was God looking for the people who were always aware, always conscious. They would scoop up the water, but they were still surveying the land as they drank. They were still, whereas if you're lapping the water, you've put your eyes down and you're looking at the water and you're lapping it up. And, and so God was looking for the really aware and conscious people. But that's actually the exact opposite of everything God has been saying so far about I'm not looking for the capable. If he was looking for the really well able and capable, he'd have kept the 32,000. I think what he did here was just make a simple division. It's that group or that group. They're going to stay on their knees or they're going to get on all fours. That's the way they're going to be divided. So the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped. And will give the Midianites into your hand, so let all the other people go, each man to his home. Started out with 32,000. God pared it down to 300. Just so that there was no way that Israel could say, our might, our power did this. God is making it real obvious that he's the one that's delivering Israel. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands. And Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down, Go with Purah, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they are saying. And afterwards, your hand will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Purah, his servant, down to the outposts of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand of the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend, and he said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell, and it turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his friend answered and said, 
This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. Out of all the sands of the sea, the innumerable camels, all the men like locusts, wasn't it lucky that Gideon just happened to show up where two guys were having this conversation? And when he heard it, he understood, oh, God has already put it in the fear of me in them. They're already afraid, and we haven't even begun the fight yet. Verse 15. And it came about when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation that he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. So basically, you wouldn't be able to see the torches because they were inside the pitchers until they broke the pitchers, and then suddenly it would just light up the sky. 300 torches surrounding the camp of Midian. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who were with me blow the trumpet... Then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just posted the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers They held the torches in their left hands, and their trumpets were in their right hands for blowing, and they cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And each stood in his place around the camp, and all of the army ran, crying out as they fled. And when they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword one against another, even throughout the whole army, and the army fled as far as Beth Shittah, toward Zerorah, as far as the edge of Abel Maholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali to Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. So what actually happened? The men that were with Gideon surrounded the camp, blowing trumpets with one hand, holding up torches with the other one, looked like an enormous army had actually surrounded the camp of Midian. God causes confusion among them, and they come out with swords against each other, and they fought each other. So they were defeating themselves, and in the midst of their being defeated, they made a run for it, and the men of Israel then chased them and pursued Midian. So actually Midian was completely routed that night, Through Gideon, who never had to kill anybody. All he had to do was do what God said. Just do what I tell you, and you will deliver Israel from Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan, and they captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb while they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. Okay. So who gets all the credit for that whole battle? I mean, that's a major battle. That is a big thing. Remember that for seven years, the uh, tribes of Media had been oppressing the tribes of Israel. Seven years they'd been dealing with this. And so this was an overwhelming victory. It freed Israel for a while from the hand of their enemies. It was done at the hand of Gideon, but it was done completely by the power of God. And God made sure that everybody knew that it was by his power, which is why he reduced the armies of Israel from 
their vast numbers down to 300. And he did all that for the purpose of saying, I'm delivering you. I'm using Gideon. I'm using 300 men. But then I'm going to use my power to deliver my people. You get the picture? Mm -hmm. Okay, that was technically all introduction. Because now you can go to Isaiah 9, where God is actually going to bring that up. And he's going to make reference back to the Battle of Midian. So you needed to know what the Battle of Midian was. Now, in order to understand chapter 9, we have to go backwards a little bit into chapter 8 so that you see the relationship of the language that Isaiah is using. In verse 20, he has just said, well, in verse 19, don't consult medians or spiritists who whisper and mutter. Should not the people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living to the law and to the testimony? If they don't speak according to that word, that's because they have no enlightenment. They have no dawn in them. And they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will become enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and gloom and anguish. And they will be driven away into darkness. And then suddenly at what we call chapter 9, the continuation of what Isaiah has prophesied for Israel the very next thing he says after describing this darkness and this gloom and this anguish he says but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, by the way, he's already told you geographically where he's going to start creating this light, where he's going to lift this darkness, where these people who were in anguish are no more going to be in gloom. And he's very particular to say, that it's in Zebulun in the land of Naphtali or Naphtali and on the other side of the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles Galilee to the north had been overrun by Gentiles ever since the uh, Assyrian captivity of the northern tribes so Galilee becomes known as Galilee of the Gentiles so when Christ comes to the planet for the first 30 years of his life that's the exact area where he lives. He lives in Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, on the other side of the Jordan, in, in Galilee. That's why we refer to him as the man from Galilee. And so we are being told geographically, prophetically, that this is where the light's going to come from. There's a light coming, and notice that it's coming to the exact same people who were in the dark, and those people are Israelites. Don't ever lose track of that. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And thou shalt multiply the nation. Which nation would that be? Israel. Israel. It has to be Israel. That's the context of everything that's being said here. God will multiply the nation. God will increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. That's when men are celebrating. Finally, there's food and we've got food stored up in our barns and we're having a feast. So it's going to be like the gladness of the harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. After a fight, after you've won a war and you get to divide up the spoils that are taken. I mean, that's gladness. Oh, we're done with the fight. But look, I'm getting rich. There's happy days. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff that is on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. 
Now, see, you could read right by that and not know what that was if you didn't know that the Battle of Midian was when God himself delivered Israel. Here's God making a promise to these people who are walking in darkness that there's going to be a light among them, a great light in a dark land. That light is going to shine on them, and it's going to bring them joy, and it's going to bring them gladness, and it's going to be like the day that God delivered them at the Battle of Midian. So this is all the work of God, and it is the work of God for the purpose of delivering Israel. And how exactly is he going to do that? He's going to deliver them, verse 5, from every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, and every cloak rolled in blood, it will all be burned. It will all be fuel for the fire. That means Israel's wars are over. You don't need the boots. You don't need the bloody cloaks anymore. You can just burn it all because you are finally, utterly delivered from your enemies by the God who delivered you the same way he delivered at the Battle of Midian. So they know that history. They know that reference. And God is saying, that is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to bring you a great light. I'm going to bring you great joy. And I'm going to bring you deliverance from all your enemies so that there is war no more. You're going to turn the elements of battle, you're going to beat them into plowshares because you're no longer going to need them to go and fight against your enemies. There's this great message of deliverance here and light and happiness and joy. And how's he going to do it? That's the context in which we read, for a child will be born to us, for a son will be given. Every Christmas, when people cite that verse, they say, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And they think that that's only a, a reference to Jesus in the manger. But according to Isaiah, it is also God himself making reference to how he delivered Israel from the Midianites. And it's a prophetic promise of their ultimate glory. He says they're going to be a glorious nation again. They're going to be on the increase again. They're going to be free from all their enemies again. And God alone is going to do it the same way that he delivered them from Midian. And how is he going to do it? Through a child, through a son. There's the beginning of the promise. As soon as they see that child born, when they see that son of God given to them, that is sure and certain proof that God is still going to do all the things that God has ever promised to the people he promised it to. Which is why... Jesus came particularly to the Israelites and was called the deliverer of Israel, the redemption of Israel. And so, a child is born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. I don't know why this is such a complicated phrase. I hear so many theologians wrestle over this one. First off, when Jesus was here on the planet, he did not take up the reins of government. In fact, when they tried to make him a king, he rejected it, walked through the middle of them, wasn't going to have it. So what government is it that he's going to take up? The government of who? Well, before you answer, Isaiah tells you. So it's not complicated. He says Jesus will take up the reins of government, and the government will rest on his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful. His name will be called Counselor. His name will be called the Mighty God. His name will be called Eternal Father and Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. See, when he takes up the reins of government, when he comes back with that two-edged sword out of his mouth, when he conquers all his enemies, then Israel is going to be at peace because he is going to rule, reign, govern over Israel. And that governance of his is never going to stop growing. It's going to keep increasing, increasing in influence, increasing in peace, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Now he defines what government he's talking about. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. Over David's kingdom. Is that clear enough? On the throne of David, over David's kingdom. 
Now, it's very common to hear people say that when Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended, and is now sitting at the right hand of God, that that somehow satisfies the prophecy that he would sit on David's throne. And they say, he is sitting on David's throne right now at the right hand of God. Except that David never ruled from heaven. So why would David's throne be in heaven? God's throne is in heaven. David's throne was at Jerusalem. And the prophecies over and over and over and over again, repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, all the prophets speak with one voice, all saying that he's going to rule from Jerusalem. And so he's going to be David's greater son. He's going to sit on David's throne and he's going to rule David's people which is why when the people were throwing down palm branches and crying Hosanna to him during the triumphal entry, that they were recognizing him as the son of David because they expected him to do everything that the son of David would do. Take up the reins of government and then cast off the yoke of Rome and make us an independent nation again. And we know that Isaiah a couple of times now has promised us this glorious nation and this glorious future. And he's promised us this great increase. And now you're here. Do it. We'll make you king. You can see now why the disciples would ask Jesus just before he sailed off into the blue. Will you return the kingdom to Israel at this time? Now? I can see why you didn't do it before. But now you've died and you've resurrected. You can't be killed. You're, you're the king that can take money out of fish's mouths and feed thousands of people with a couple loaves and a couple fish. And you can't be killed. Best king ever. None of our enemies can stand against our king. So let's make him king. Are you going to return the kingdom to Jerusalem now? And he says it's not for you to know the times that the father's placed in his own hands, which is basically, no, not yet. But you'll notice that he did not say, guys, do you not understand? It's a spiritual kingdom now. I'm going to go sit on David's throne in heaven, and all those promises are erased. They're all fulfilled in some spiritual way. Except that what we read in the New Testament is that all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. So in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, all the promises of God made in the Old Testament, made to Israel particularly, are now validated and secured by the very fact that there was a child born and there was a son given, that he is the light who came to Israel and he's going to take up the rule of government and he's going to rule from David's throne over David's people and he's also going to be called eternal father and prince of peace. And the increase of his government is never going to stop, but it hasn't happened yet. So does that mean it's not going to happen? Or does it mean that it's going to happen later? Jesus didn't say, it's not going to happen. He said, not now. And then we read Paul referring to the times of the Gentiles, which seem to be the times that we're living in right now. But we know that after the times of the Gentiles are over, according to Paul, then all Israel is going to be saved, which is a very short synopsis of everything the prophets have promised, all of which have to come true through Christ, in whom they are yea and amen. Get it? Yes. Got it. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to establish the kingdom and the throne of David and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on, which means he's going to establish it at some point, from that point when he establishes it, and forevermore. So once he establishes that kingdom, 
it goes on forevermore. Exactly the way, by the way, that the prophet Daniel sees the image that Nebuchadnezzar explains in his dream, or that Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar from his dream, that starts out with the head of gold and the shoulders and the chest of silver and the belly and the sides of brass and then the iron legs and the ten-toed kingdom. And then there is a rock, a stone, that comes down and crushes all the previous kingdoms and sets up a kingdom, according to Daniel, which will never be destroyed. They're all saying the same thing. They're all describing the same thing. It's that Christ, the child born, the son given, is the one who is going to establish the eternal kingdom, the kingdom that's not going to end, and that he's going to start at Israel, and he's going to start at David's throne, and he's going to start at Jerusalem. And that either has to happen, or God's a liar. Either God's word is absolutely true, or it's going to happen. Because it's not just said once, it's said over and over and over again. And then, on top of all that, after all those promises, based on God himself saying, I did it at Midian, I proved I can do it, and now I promise you I'm going to do it again, the end of verse 7 says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Is it going to happen? Well, when Isaiah said it, it was all future to him. But we know historically the child was born. We know historically that the son was given, that he was born a Jew, that he was born in Israel. We know that that actually happened. We know that he was recognized as the son of David. We know that he died. We know that he resurrected. We know that he's ascended to the right hand of God. So all of that should be evidence that the first part of this passage has absolutely come true in time and history in a very literal sense. It actually happened. So then shouldn't the second half of this promise also come true? Especially if God starts with, remember I can do it, remember Midian. Okay, you got that? Okay, remember that. And now that I've made all these promises, my zeal which is a word that means heat. I mean, God is zealous for his own word. He never said a word that he didn't accomplish. And his own zeal for himself and his own word, the Lord of hosts, that name that means the Lord who is sovereign over everyone and everything, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. It doesn't just mean that he's going to accomplish it because he said it and he likes the idea. It's emotional to him. He is zealous to accomplish this. Why? Because it reaches all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. Because it reaches all the way back to the Davidic covenant. Because it reaches all the way back to the eternal covenant he made with his son. The covenants of God, the promises of God, the prophecies of God, and the zeal of the Lord is behind this promise. You think it's secure? (laughs) I would have to say it was. Turn to Matthew 4 for a moment now, and we'll call it a night. Matthew 4, we're going to start reading at verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Remember Galilee of the Gentiles that we just read earlier? And leaving Nazareth... He came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Does that sound familiar? That's the exact region where Isaiah said the great light was going to come from. It was even geographically accurate. That's a pretty accurate prophecy. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. See, I wasn't just making it up. I wasn't just trying to draw connections that aren't actually there. The word of God actually says that the reason Jesus went to Galilee and went to Naphtali and went to Zebulun was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. 
and to those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Did you feel that? Mm -hmm. After everything we know, and everything that prophecy contains, and then a child born and a son given, and he even goes to the geographical areas that fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, starting at that moment, that's when Jesus begins to preach, repent, the kingdom of God's here among you. And as long as he was walking among them, the kingdom of God was among them, because he's their eternal king, he's their prince of peace, he's their deliverer, He's the one who is responsible for the warfare of Midian. He's the one who has guaranteed them a glorious future, and he's the one who is going to make sure that it happens. But, turn to John, the very beginning of John. You probably see this coming. Very first chapter of the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that came into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. What did Isaiah promise the people in darkness? that they were going to see a great light. And then Jesus walked among them. And John, make sure you don't miss it, and says, he was that light. He's the light that walked among the darkened people. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness, the NASB says, did not comprehend it. Comprehension makes it sound like they figured it out. The, the Greek word, means more than that. It means that the darkness could not quench it, could not consume it, could not overwhelm it. That that light shone regardless of how dark the darkness was. And that great light that shone among Israel was prophesied by Isaiah. So this Christmas, when you hear, unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given, it should immediately register with you that that is God's down payment on all the promises that he has made future for Israel, that he has demonstrated by the way he delivered them from Midian. And so this is actually a whole human history kind of prophecy and demonstration that God has put in front of us and then is satisfying and fulfilling in sending his son to the planet, and then his son left with the promise he'd be back. Why is he coming back? There's still things to do. He's coming to be the king of Israel. Got it? Got it. It's good to find all those connections in the Bible and see the faithfulness of God, because he made you promises. And every once in a while, I'm sure you have felt like, I got to go lay a fleece in front of God. <laughs> I, I got to get out there and say, are you sure? Because this is tough. I'm getting beat up here. Are you sure? But the demonstration of God through his word, through history, through the very fact that he sent his son as a demonstration of the fact that he keeps his word, keeps his promises, keeps his prophecies, hasn't let a single one of them drop. That's why Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. That's what he's doing. He's fulfilling the promises of the prophets. He is the down payment. He is the guarantee of everything else the prophets have said. Because he is here. He actually was here. He actually was on the planet. And God said, that's your proof. A child is born. A son is given. If you recognize him, then you recognize that everything else I've said is true. It's astounding. So, questions? I've got a question. On the, the, one of the names for Jesus here is uh, Everlasting Father. Yeah. Is, is that... To me, that jumps out to me as a reference to his deity and his uh, uh, the triune nature of the Godhead. Mm -hmm. I think it's unavoidable. 
Right. That's why we also looked at John, that the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right. That's, that's making the same equation that Isaiah is making when he says he will be El Gabor. He, he will be God Almighty, you know, and he will be the Everlasting Father. But he's also a child, and he's also a sonborn. And so, yeah, the mystery of the Trinity looms large in those passages. But you're not allowed to just think of him as separate from God. You know, he's, he's the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. It's, a, it's an astounding mystery. And that's why it changed the course of all human history. It just, it's just overwhelming to think about, you know, how obvious it is talking about Christ here in the Old Testament. And, you know, Paul says in, in Romans when he refers to Israel, you know, not understanding and not believing, just the same way we've been reading in Acts, that calls it a partial hardening. It, 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 all, it has to be a hardening, a blinding in order for not to see some of these obvious things that are laid out yeah. here, just like we looked at tonight. Um, it's pretty incredible because it's exact same locations. How can you not think that that is anything but Christ? Yeah, it's remarkable detail. Right. And so to miss it, like you said, would have to take God actually keeping you from seeing it. You'd have to be hardened and blinded. But that's why God keeps saying that he blinded Israel. Why? Because he's, what's that word? Sovereign. And he can do whatever he wants. And it's our benefit. <laughs> yes. Because it's until the time of the Gentiles. Yeah. So. And that takes us to our Sunday morning eschatological hope. Hint, hint. See? Now you know where we're kind of going. <laughs> you get the assist. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.